Okay, we're recording. Okay, we're recording. Hopefully this is working. All right, guys, so anybody remember what we talked about last lecture? <laughs> What's that? Vision. We talked about vision. That's right. Vision. So what about vision? Is it Marissa? No. Yeah. Marissa Mendoza? Cool. So what about vision? The rods and cones. Cones, right? You have red, green, and blue cones. You have rods, which are useful for uh, detecting grayscale and differences in light. And, they, and then we studied, we specifically studied rods. And um, we talked about, see if I can draw this thing, how rods respond to light and dark. All right, ultimately, rods um that's right so when it's dark you accumulate rhodopsin which is composed of opsin plus retinol right retinol but it's a specific conformation of retinol. Anyone remember the conformation? That's right. So 11 cis retinol uh, is in complex together with opsin to form rhodopsin. Okay. Whatever. Okay. In, when it's dark, that accumulates. Now, when light hits, so light hits, so here's rhodopsin over here. Okay, which is a, a combination of uh, opsin plus 11 cis retinol, right? So then when light hits, Really, it's coming this way, right? So it comes, remember that the lens, here's the eye. You've got a lens here. And then you've got all this area that's retina. There is like an area where it goes to the optic nerve, but there's all this retina. But when you're looking straight ahead, that light is gonna shine and focus on a region that's got an indent, the fovea centralis, or the fovea that's particularly rich in cones. But, you know, depending on how you're looking, this may hit different parts of the retina. There's still rods here, but then remember that in the retina, the rods are the closest to this side, the retinal pigment epithelium layer. All right, so um, if we were to blow this part up,
then there would be a lot of different layers here. One of them would be the rods. Not the best drawer here. All right, but then there's also this bipolar cell layer. And then, ultimately, this is going to, starting and then ultimately this is going to signal to the ganglion cell layer just synapsing here and that's going to go via the axons via the optic nerve to the back of the to your midbrain okay so what we're talking about is this part right here right these are the rods and cones the photoreceptors so that's this Okay, so light hits, so in other words, light would be coming in this way, right? It interacts here, and then it transduces this way. Okay, so light hits, rhodopsin breaks apart, okay? So rhodopsin breaks apart. Now you have opsin plus what is what does 11 cis retinol become comes all trans retinol and it disassociates from opsin so you get rid of rhodopsin okay this is in light How are we doing so far? Let me make this a little better. Okay, so light hits. This thing breaks apart. Okay. So you're left with opsin, which becomes activated in the presence of light. And so what is opsin? What is opsin? What type of protein is opsin? Ask your neighbor. What type of protein is opsin? Anybody know? What type of protein is opsin? I heard a bunch of people say G protein. That's part, yeah. So what are the proteins that are always coupled to the G? GPCR. GPCR. Remember that pharmacologically over half of all drugs are targeting GPCR. So there's a lot of them. We'll encounter them over and over again in physiology. Um, so opsin is one of them. Okay, opsin is a GPCR. So opsin, the GPCR opsin, in the presence of light becomes activated, and so in turn, what that does is activate the G protein, 
In this case, the name of the G protein is transducin. Does that ring a bell? Yes. Yes. It's a classification of proteins. And just like the metabotropic, so when we're talking about neuroscience, they, talk, they call them metabotropic receptors, but typically metabotropic receptors are GPCRs. Okay. But GPCRs transcend beyond just neuroscience. They're everywhere. They're a major class of receptor. One of the major classes of receptors, another major class of receptor being the receptor tyrosine kinases, which are very important in like cancer biology. They're really associated with growth. Things like insulin receptor is a receptor tyrosine kinase, whereas adrenaline receptor is a GPCR. Those are the two major families of receptor types. Okay, so light hits. It was rhodopsin. It breaks apart. The opsin component becomes activated, activates the G protein. G protein goes off, and what it does is it activates an enzyme. Does anyone remember the name of the enzyme? What's that? That's right. It decreases cyclic GMP. So what is it? That's what it does. The enzyme. The enzyme is PDE. Okay, and what that does is PDE breaks down cyclic GMP. What does PDE stand for? That's right. PDE is, stands for phosphodiesterase. So this stands for G protein coupled receptor. And PDE stands for phosphodiesterase. So what PDE does is it decreases cyclic GMP levels. It breaks, it cuts cyclic GMP up. So it decreases cyclic GMP levels. Okay, so it turns out that normally, so I should do the dark versus light, right? So here's the, here's dark. You guys see that? Yeah? Okay. So in dark, this is rhodopsin, right? And it's the opsin bound to the 11 cis retinal. And it's off. So opsin is off. Okay? As a result, PDE is off. And there are higher levels of cyclic GMP inside of the photoreceptor. Cyclic GMP, remember, interacts with a channel here. Anyone remember the name of this channel? CNG channel. CNG channel stands for, I'll write it up here too. CNG cyclic 
nucleotide gated channel. Cyclic nucleotides, for example, cyclic GMP. Okay, so it's a ligand-gated channel that binds to cyclic GMP. So as it binds to cyclic GMP, what it does is allow the influx of sodium and calcium. Which would have what effect on a photoreceptor? Would it depolarize it or repolarize it? Depolarize, right? So this is a depolarizing This is a depolarizing force. Right? Is this CNG channel when it's open? Okay? And it's open because cyclic GMP levels are high. So cyclic GMP can bind to this channel cause it to open so that sodium and calcium can rush in which causes depolarizing force okay great there's also another channel that's always is just leaky okay the other channel is potassium channel the leaky Right, which is always having potassium going out, which would be depolarizing or repolarizing or hyperpolarizing. It would be. So what this does is, yeah, it it uh, if you're losing positive, that makes it more negative. Right, so it depends. It depends what the voltage is. But either way, it's going to make the photoreceptor more negative. You guys agree with that? Okay. But then this is going to make the photoreceptor more positive. Okay? So they're always in the dark. This is overwhelming this. So that the overall membrane voltage is what? Roughly, what did we say it was? Minus 40? Approximately. Okay. Now in this case, in the light, you still have the leaky channel. Okay, that's always happening. Oops. However, um, if you have phosphodiesterase active, that gets rid of the, that decreases the cyclic GMP, right? So that decreases. Got a lot of colors here. Sorry, guys, that we're all on this side. <laughs> you guys are probably stoked, right? You're like, yeah. So now you have decreased levels of cyclic GMP. This marker sucks. Basically, GMP is being destroyed by the phosphodiesterase enzyme. Okay, the enzyme, this enzyme just gets rid of the cyclic GMP. It's gone. 
So if the cyclic GMP is gone, now this channel, CNG channel, is closed, right? And so because that channel is closed, sodium and calcium cannot rush in, but potassium is still leaking out, so that causes the photoreceptor to become more negative, right? Which makes ultimately makes the, the membrane potential inside to be approximately minus 70. Okay, so in what state is the photoreceptor signaling more? So remember, on this side is the, the presynaptic side, right? So it's actually secreting neurotransmitters into this space, right? So which one is secreting more neurotransmitters? The dark, right? So there's actually more neurotransmitters being released to the bipolar neuron when it's dark versus when it's light. Okay, because remember, I erased it, but remember that this is connected to the bipolar neuron underneath. Okay, bipolar. Okay, bipolar neuron. Sound good? Simple, right? <laughs> What's that? Is that I mean, the vesicle release is calcium dependent, so it's going to help. But it also has to do with the membrane potential. Can I take a picture? Sure. There's also voltage-gated calcium channels. That's what, those are sensitive to the overall membrane potential. And those are going to trigger neurotransmitter release. What's that? Yeah. There you go. Make some NFTs. <laughs> All right, let's see. I got to log into this thing. So that's vision. So that's that's the sense where I really like have you guys try to do a little bit of a mechanistic thing. But otherwise, when I show you these cartoons, whenever I say like, hey, look, there's a GPCR there, you can assume it's probably doing something like this. But we're just going to say, look, it's through GPCR signaling and just leave it at that. Okay, so I'm, you don't have to do this for every sense, for olfactory and for, for you know, uh, everything else. See, I got to remember my password here. Although I think I did include a slide here, if it's still here, that shows you a channel you might recognize. Let's see. Overall, we don't get too complicated into uh, neurophysiology. 
That is more, Dr. Dr. Rad is more of a specialist in neurophysiology than me. I think I told you guys this. I majored in physiology and neuroscience, but then I moved over to the immunology, uh, kind of biomedical, immunolo immunological side of things in my post-undergraduate post work. I don't know if I can find, I might have to re-download. That's good, so I will exclude that slide. But I can could, I could show you online. If you look at olfactory signaling, you guys can't see that here. It's better I just show you rather than include it on the slides. There we go. So if you look at this, you might recognize a couple of things. So this is olfactory. This is smell, right? So take a look at this. This, this thing that has seven transmembrane domains, any idea what that could be? This is a GPCR, this red thing. This is a G protein. These G proteins actually have many different subunits typically, an alpha, beta, gamma subunits. This is an adenyl cyclase, which can actually convert ATP to one of the cyclic uh, nucleotides. But then look at this thing. Do you recognize this? The CNG channel, right? So that's a cyclic nucle nucleotide gated channel. In this case, the production of cyclic AMP is actually, in, in fact, there is an adenyl, it's a little bit reversed, right? But in this case, uh, cyclic AMP is then binding to the cyclic nucleotide, nucleotide gated channel, causing an influx of sodium and calcium which can uh, potentially, you know, so you, you get the idea. So this is actually kind of a similar, it's not exactly the same, but you can recognize a couple players here that are in the same sort of signaling transduction that we're describing when we're talking about vision. All right, so you'll see this over and over again because these, these GPCRs utilize secondary messengers. And typically, this is a very canonical signaling pathway where the GPCR activates, in this case, it's producing a cyclic nucleotide instead of activating the enzyme to break it down. Okay, And then that's, that's affecting this ZNG channel. And as you see, most of these signaling receptors, if they're metabotropic or if they're GPCRs, ultimately they're causing some sort of difference in ions, in ion exchange at the membrane, right? which is altering membrane potential. It's also activating internally a lot of proteins that may be sensitive to differences in membrane potential and so on and so forth right so and this is different from your typical ionotropic receptor right which just it's activated and then it directly brings the ion through so you see how like this movement of ions is happening and this is influencing your perception of all kinds of things like how you see how you smell and we'll learn also as soon as I download the slides how you taste all the sensory input that you're experiencing, it really comes down to just movement of ions across membranes. All right, which is crazy if you think about it, right? But just remember that your brain is actually seeing, hearing, feeling, smelling, nothing, right? All it's receiving is input, action potential input, which is due to changes in ions moving across membranes, which is crazy, right? So that's, that's how we perceive. And so that's the idea is, so if that's the case, could we then hack that? Could we make ourselves see or perceive things just based off of moving ions across membranes, right? Which is 
also what you do in um, a lot of electro. There, there's a lot of overlap between neurophysiology and electrophysiology and circuits and mag <laughs> you know uh, circuits circuitry. That was that was one of the funnest classes I ever took. Was electrophysiology? It was just all circuits, it's like capacitance, resistance, and currents, and it's like might as well have been taking uh, electricity and magnetism circuits. Okay, today is oh so we should wait, but uh, let me at least show you some of the other pictures about some other sensory components. Let me download this. Okay, so we talked about these different types of sensory input, right? Going to different regions of the brain. From the periphery, most of it's going to this somato somatosensory cortex, right? But then these other specialized, uh, we just talked about vision, how vision runs to the occipital lobe, to the visual cortex in the back of the brain. Taste, there's actually a gustatory complex, or sorry, cortex. Right. Um, smell. There's actually an olfactory cortex, olfactory bulb, okay, which also runs back to the limbic system. And then sound as well. Right. You have an auditory cortex. And then uh, I think even if you guys have taken psychology or anything, you're familiar with Broca, Wernicke, and different regions associated with um, the production of speech versus interpreting speech. Right. Okay. This is just like a general overlook of, of sensation, how it's coming into the brain and how it's and what regions are potentially uh, interpreting, right? So smell, instead of getting into the specifics like we did with the vision, right, generally you should know that smells kind of special for a lot of reasons. I told you it's, I'm going to show you, I think in the next slides, how it's, it's, it's connected to your limbic system, which is a region of your brain that's it's associated with emotions and memory, which is why, you know, you can like smell something and it could like remind you of your childhood and how you felt like the nostalgia, you know, of, uh, of a moment just by smelling a certain thing, right? Uh, which is kind of special, right? Not, what's that? Yeah, like ratatouille, right? Exactly. That's exactly right, right? He like smells it and all of a sudden he goes back to his childhood, right? And everybody wants to cook like their grandmothers did, right? Because they want to, it's like this uh, interesting mind exercise cooking is, right? So a lot of that is because like neurologically, your sense of smell actually is, is hardwired into a, a special system that's associated with those things, with memory and emotions. And I'll, I'll get to that. And, but also it's kind of special. You have a special, you guys recognize these types of neurons here? They're kind of like bipolar neurons. And then it's on this side where you have that uh, sensory reception going on, where you see the GPCRs and all that, the CNGs. That's happening right here at the mucus layer. But that's going to travel right through this uh, olfactory bulb back into the uh, olfactory cortex, right? And then this is what I'm describing. Not only will it go to your cerebral cortex, which is more, you know, upper cognizant, but also limbic limbic system which is memory and emotions um, there's something else that's special about uh, 
the olfactory neurons is that they're constantly regenerating. So it's be, they're exposed to open air, right? Because they are smelling stuff all the time. So they can get damaged. So they're constantly regenerating. So actually your olfactory neurons are a good source of adult stem cells. Right? If you want to get in there and try to grab them. Because they, they are constantly regenerating, right? So that's, that's the point here. You can show you some of the other, the, the glands, right? Olfactory glands. And, uh, but read here how it says olfactory neurons can live only about two months. They're replaced by new neurons whose axons must find their way to the olfactory bulb, right? So in order for that to happen, you have to have a source of stem cells there. And they're not like embryonic stem cells, but they're adult stem cells that will, are constantly regenerating the neurons. You know how they say a, a lot of your nerves don't regenerate, right? That's why if you hurt your spinal cord, that's it. You're done, right? Well, I mean, we're working on it, but you're, you have paralysis, right? But some areas you do have constant uh, generation. One area is the hippocampus of your brain where you form memories. And another is here in your nose. The neurons are constantly regenerating. I mean, I don't know, you know, I haven't read any studies on smell, but I swear women can smell better than men. I haven't read, like, I don't know if anyone's actually quantified that, but it's just an observation, right? There's no scientific basis to it that I've read, but it just seems that way, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, I know especially pregnant women have, like, uh, every pregnant woman I've ever met, like, the sense of smell just, like, goes, like, through the roof. We should do it. We should like uh, conduct some sort of experiment. We don't have a very big population size, but we could probably. I'm sure it balances out, but it's just. It seems like. I I certainly have like no sense of smell. Like I. I don't know what happened. Maybe I got some COVID-like virus some time ago, and I just can't smell anything. <laughs> you know, but it's also my nose is broken like several times, so I never got it fixed. So I. Whatever. Okay, so. Anyway, that's the big point of this slide is to tell you that neurons regenerate, right? So even if I, in theory, you know, even if I had a, some sort of COVID-like virus, unless it's something wrong with my olfactory cortex, the actual nerves that are, have the odorant receptors, those are regenerating every couple months. So I should be able to get my smell back, right? Unless it's in like in a, a deeper problem going further back into the olfactory bulb or olfactory cortex. Okay, taste, you guys have all heard of taste buds, right, your taste buds. So this is what's in a taste bud. It's several different types of cells that contain different types of receptors that can sense different types of taste, right? You have sweet, you have umami, which is what? It's kind of like a savory, right? Uh, you have bitter, right? And you have uh, sour. So here you can see on the, on the other side, on the signaling side, a lot of these cells are releasing ATP okay, or releasing serotonin in order to propagate uh, the sensory signal. Okay? But on the, on the receptor side, it's actually the same things. Right? You guys recognize these? If it's a cell that is a, detecting sweet, umami, or bitter, okay, the ligand is binding to this type of receptor. You guys recognize this? GPCRs, right? You're gonna see this over and over and over again. So then that must be what type of receptor would you, would you consider that to be? 
if we were if this were neuroscience we'd say this is a metabotropic receptor right which it kind of it's a specialized cell involved in uh, sensory so but yeah so gpcr signaling right and the g protein that it's coupled to its name is gust gustacin for gustatory right gustacin in the in the sorry gustacin there you go gustacin and in the in vision it's transducin right that's the name of the G protein, right? So you see how this is, there's a lot of anal analogy here. In this case, uh, the, GCP, the GPCR is triggering store-operated calcium entry. So, which is, is, well, it's actually from both, right? It's triggering calcium influx from the outside and from the inside, okay? Which then facilitates the release of, in this case, ATP to the primary gustatory neurons. Or here with sour, it's even simpler, right? Because sour is actually detecting what? H plus. We learned about pH, right? So pH, the more acidic it is, the more H plus it has. Does that ring a bell? You guys still awake? Am I losing you? It's too early, right? Uh, yeah, so the, the, the lower the pH, the more H plus, right? So look here. So in this case, what type of receptor would this be if the H plus is, is going directly through it? Or uh, I guess, uh, yeah, it could just be a channel or it could be ligand gated. But either way, if it's, if it's directly causing the ion to go through, what would be the analogy of that type of uh, receptor in neuroscience? If this would be like a metabotropic type of signaling system, then this would be more of a ionotropic. Right, exactly, right? In this case, although this may just be, they put a question mark, right? Because what they think is happening is that the H plus ions are just directly going through this, these channels, and that is then triggering, you know, the, the same story, right? Cal uh, increase in calcium, but in this case, the neurotransmitter being released is serotonin onto the primary gustatory neurons. Alright? So once you kind of understand the fundamentals, when you see this stuff, it kind of makes sense, right? Ish? Yeah? Sort of? Okay, good. All right, we talked about vision. Now, sound is a little bit... Um, is that all we got? We got... Yeah, we got... We talked about touch. We talked about vision. We talked about smell. And now we should talk about hearing, right? Uh, the purpose of this sli slide is to tell you that your brain can actually perceive the location of sound based off of the small differences in that sound hitting one ear versus the other ear. All right, so when this sound happens over here, I can, I can tell just because it hits this ear a little bit faster than it hits this ear. All right, you don't think about that, right? But that's actually helping uh, contribute to your psychoacoustics, to your perception of sound. Also, um, this, this uh, we verbally talked about a little bit, but you have these different regions. So when it comes to hearing and interpreting sound versus generating sound, right, that's actually, there's different regions of the brain that are responsible for that, right? So this is the Broca versus Wernicke. Here you go. Here's, here's Wernicke. Here's Broca. Right? When you're, um, let's see, this is a better, this is a better slide. So this is a PET scan looking at brain activity. 
So this makes sense to you guys? So if, you, if, you, if you're looking at a word, that's vision. Right, so that's going to run back to your visual cortex of your occipital lobe. That's what you see here. Um, when you hear a word, right, it's more associated with, um, you know, the, what the traditional uh, auditory cortex, right? But speaking, brokers versus learning, you know, uh, different regions of your brain are associated with hearing versus uh, speaking words. And then if you think about speaking, I guess in theory you could use all these things, right? Yeah, it makes sense. Absolutely. Okay, so um, the actual psychoacoustics, so the actual perception of sound. How many of you guys have seen this? The malleus thinkus and the stapes and all this. Have you guys, did you get this in anatomy? No, yes, some of you guys. How many of you guys have seen this? Okay, most of you. How many of you guys have not seen this? Okay, some of you guys. Okay, so you know you have your eardrum, right? Your tympanic membrane, this is your eardrum, right? This is what you don't want to pierce on accident with your Q-tips or whatever, what have you. And of course, this thing is going to vibrate. So it's going to resonate. And as it does so, it's connected to these little bones here, the malleus, the incus, and the stapes. So those are all going to resonate. And ultimately, all of that arrives at this tiny little oval window, okay, which then resonates. And those vibrations then propagate through, right, uh, the, these, uh, the vestibular duct, you know, the all this stuff, right, it's going to um, propagate through. And ultimately, this gets perceived, let's see if we can find it here, right? Uh, these sounds get perceived inside of this, uh, th well, this region right here, right? The tectorial membrane, the ba uh, basilar membrane. What you have here are these tiny little hair cells, okay? And these hair cells, they move mechanically, but they move specific, different hair cells will move specifically based off of whatever frequency uh, they're exposed to, right? So every hair cell has a frequency at which it will move. And so, uh, but it's the actual movement of these hair cells that causes you then to, this propagates through, and this is what actually leads to the, the uh, psychocute, the, the perception of sound, is the movement of these hair cells right, at the tectorial membrane. So, um, yeah, essentially that, that, the movement of those hair cells then propagates this signal down uh, to the cochlear nerve and then ultimately to your auditory cortex. Okay, so let's see if I can find here. So this is how that actually happens, right? So as these things move, ultimately that's going to lead to some sort of neurotransmitter release, right? Which then uh, activate, you know, that neurotransmitter release then 
Uh, you know, at excitation, you're going to have more neurotransmitter release, right? In theory, you could have inhibition, but as you as these things move and become excited, okay, you get more neurotransmitter release, and that propagates an action potential, which then ultimately goes back and uh, facilitates your interpretation of sound. So it's the same thing. In this case, it's hair cells actually moving <laughs> that leads to more neurotransmitter release, which then propagates through your neurons, ultimately to your auditory cortex. Okay. Um, so this happens a lot. I think, I think if you don't know, the thalamus is a major switchboard in your brain. So most signals coming in will travel through the thalamus before they get shuttled to whichever regions of the brain are ultimately uh, going to be doing the interpretation. Okay. PowerPoint slides. I don't know how, how much you guys like these, but they're, uh, I figured we'd just look at some pictures for a little while instead of, you know. All right, so um, equilibrium. So your ears are also important. For those of you that haven't seen this, right, your ears are also, I know for you, so a lot of you this is review, but your ears are also very important for equilibrium in different ways. One is the semicircular canals, right, that contain fluid that, uh, you know, this endolymph that can, uh, you know, as you move your head, you literally can move through fluid in your ears, right? Which can affect your equilibrium and orientation. And also, if, if, uh, if, you know, if you get hit pretty hard in the ear, or if you damage your ears somehow, say in like a boxing match or something, uh, that can also potentially affect your equilibrium, right? So, uh, and that's also why some of these, I think there's a ride, some of these rides that you go through where they uh, try to distort your, like, uh, you know, uh, isn't there like a ride in Disneyland where you go through this tunnel and they like play all these things and they, they move, they're moving you around and they're trying to like make you feel all disoriented. And while they, while they do that, they're also, they play a very low vibration sound to try to also like, you know, influence your or auditory perception as well. Uh, perhaps to try to get at your uh, endolymph. But yeah, so you, you have regions in your, in your inner ear that are uh, also important for your own you know, orientation and some, some proprioception, right? Uh, equilibrium. And also there's these crystals, right? The otolith crystals inside of here. So in addition to the movement of the endolymph, you also have these otolith crystals which can potentially, they move with gravity. And has, has anyone here ever had any issues with their otolith crystals? I had like the nine position of vertigo. You've had the vertigo as a result of? Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. It lasted like about three weeks, but it was only when I would like lay down. Yeah. And like I would just start spinning super bad. Yeah. And then I'd have to like close my eyes and just like ride it out. Yeah. So this is, I've, I've had students with this before. So if you have any issues with your otolith, and then how do, what are they, how can they treat you for issues with your otolith uh, equilibrium or otolith uh, crystal? You said essentially the crystal kind of like uh, dislodged, so it just ultimately be absorbed or metabolized or something eventually. But in the meantime, you experience severe vertigo, right? It's messing with your orientation and, and uh, uh, yeah, so... 
the crystals are also any of this stuff if you have any issue with your inner ear or with your endolymph or with your crystals it can give you a severe messed up orientation uh, in equilibrium or vertigo <laughs> really oh that's that sucks I would be very annoyed because <laughs> you don't realize how important it is unless something uh, goes haywire right so um, okay so that's like a real general overview of perception of sound and so your ear is not only important for perceiving actual sound waves but also important in maintaining your sense of equilibrium okay, okay. what else uh, here's some here's another here's a I mean this is like really general overview right this is this is not anatomy class so we're not going to go through every single region of the brain more importantly is I want you guys to understand how nerves are actually like how sensations actually happening so and really it's all coming down to the release of neurotransmitters the propagation of action potentials right and then those those uh, neurotransmitters get released in different ways a lot of the time it's these GPCRs or, or uh, ion channels that are actually causing the uh, signaling and sensation to occur but here's some other regions of your brain, right? The frontal lobe has your primary motor cortex. So this happens a lot where you have sensory, if it's somatic sensory input, it goes to the somatosensory cortex, and then right there neighboring it is the primary motor cortex, right? So you can imagine that some types of reflexes could go to your somatosensory over to your primary motor and then down your motor neuron track to have you have your... Uh, actual physical movement or some sort of uh, reflex response right there's also the motor so associated area just like there's the sensory associated area a lot of nociception and things like this are, are taking place over uh, a little bit adjacent to the somatosensory cortex a lot of motor uh, refining a lot of uh, a lot of uh, yeah, motor refinement can also and signaling can also be occurring in this motor associated area right so you have big areas of your brain dedicated to just sensation and motor movement receiving input and sending input out or output out right? and then these specialized regions that we've talked about involving these different senses okay we made it through that how are we doing on time not bad okay so we'll start today talking more about periphery and then we're going to get into the more into somatic movement um, one thing I, I, I keep this slide on here just because I want to tell you guys about the flatworms because I think it's a cool story so the flatworms here you know of course we're, we have a pretty advanced brain and of course uh, more primitive animals do not have that What's interesting about the flatworm is it might tell us something about how memories form or what memories are composed of. Because, of course, we still don't know how memories form. You guys know that, right? We don't know what, like, how is memories, where are they in our brain and how are they being stored? We have no idea. We've been trying to figure that out. I know a guy, uh, they've done like this pulse chase where they have these radioactive nitrogens that they put into and they're trying to figure out if they end up getting stored somewhere long-term in the brain for years and years because what is actually long-term memory and how is it stored 
Right, Roger Chen, who's the Nobel laureate, uh, he passed away recently. He had some crazy ideas about what memories could actually be and how they're stored. But generally, we don't. Un isn't it remarkable that we don't understand how memories are stored? <laughs> like after all this time and all of our, um, we know what region of the brain is important for memories. We know the hippocampus is like the major memory-associated area of the brain. Right, and we know, and we'll talk about the limbic system. We'll talk a little bit more about the brain. Uh, so we know, and then we know that there's newly gener uh, regenerating neurons in the hippocampus. We didn't used to know that, but we know that now. And what else do we know? We know that there's some crazy genetics going on there as well. Like there's big chunks of DNA that are getting chucked around, moved around inside of the cells that are newly developing in the hippocampus. But we still don't understand how memories, how they work where they're being stored, anything like that. And so, which to me is remarkable. But if you look at a flatworm, okay, so the flatworm, and this is an old experiment that was done in the 50s. Because you wouldn't do this nowadays. Okay, but the flatworm, here's the poor flatworm. Okay, now what they did, you guys can all see this? What they did is they would train the flatworm. So they had two little electrodes here. And as the flatworm would, would go down this Y, if it turned left, they would shock it. And if it, they, if it turned right, they didn't, right? So over time, they taught the, the flatworm how to always turn right at the Y. Okay, so they could train, the flatworm had enough of a brain, or you know, not a brain, but enough of a nervous system to learn how to always turn right at the Y, okay? So then what they did, because for God, for whatever reason, these scientists, then what they did is they ground the flatworm up and fed it to another flatworm, okay? And then the, the flatworm that ate the previous flatworm would always turn right. So they were able to give the flatworm the memory by having it eat another flatworm. So that is really fascinating, but that's not the end of the story. Then they tried to do this in more complex animals. They tried to do it in rodents and stuff like this, and it did not work. And it's pretty sad, but that's, that's uh, what they were doing in the 50s. But somehow with the flatworm, somehow you can train it, and then you can grind it up, feed it to another flatworm, and it will have gained the memory that the other flatworm had learned. Okay, that's just a story for you to chew on. Um, yeah, okay. You're like, good to know, right? Thanks for letting me know. Yeah. Okay, so here's some other regions of the, the brain that you may be able to tap into. Right, so the thalamus... I said that's kind of like a switchboard. That's, that's a lot of the processing goes through the thalamus to wherever it's going to get to. The pineal gland is typically associated with, you know, melatonin secretion, which you may know is associated with sleep, right? But interestingly, uh, some research is showing that you can tap into your pineal gland by doing meditation or things like this, right? You can actually uh, mod modulate your melatonin secretion uh, by doing extreme, I don't know how extreme, but uh, 
I've actually been involved in some of these studies. So I've actually looked at blood and I've looked at, uh, and the group I was with was looking at melatonin. And we, we observed like an increase in melatonin in these individuals that went through this rigorous uh, meditation conference. That was kind of cool. Uh, and then the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, we're, we're really going to discuss and get into when we talk about the endocrine system, right? Because these are regions of the brain that are primarily associated with a lot of your hormone uh, release, right? Um, not just the pituitary, but a lot of it's being controlled by the hypothalamus, right? And you notice they're right next to each other, okay? So hypothalamus, pituitary, a lot of endocrine modulation, a lot of endocrine uh, regulation going on there let's see do we need to talk about gray and white matter no. okay I do want to tell you guys about the limbic system so uh, these regions cingulate gyrus thalamus hippocampus amygdala and your olfactory as you can see here here's your olfactory bulbs right olfactory bulbs run in all of these regions are associated with memory and emotion. All right, we talked about the hippocampus. That's your major kind of memory center. Amygdala is more, amygdala is the one they kind of attribute to that, like, ah, oh, this reminds me of my childhood, blah, 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 right? So, and by the way, this is also makes it difficult for, uh, you know, let's say somebody was raised by their family and they were taught to eat a very poor diet, like Big Macs every day. Right? It's also a reason why it's very difficult for them to change their, their nutrition because of the fact that they have such an emotional connection to their food based off of their childhood and everything else, right? All of these sensations are like really ingrained in your, your memory and emotion, right? So it's like... Uh, the limbic system is an interesting place. Another interesting thing about the limbic system is that, and we'll, we'll, I'll show you some slides and stuff, but um, it can actually, you know, we're going to learn about the autonomic and somatic, uh, somatic nervous systems, right? And autonomic is considered to be involuntary. But actually there is a limbic, a limbic system component that can help, that can... Uh, has an input on your autonomic, your involuntary system, right? Which makes sense, right? If you get really stressed out, you know that's affecting your heart or something. And you know if, if you're, uh, you know, your, your emotions, your memory and emotions can also influence your autonomic system, like your blood pressure and your heart rate and your breath rate and things like this, right? So there is actually some control of your involuntary movements. And it comes from here. It comes from the limbic system, your limbic system input. Limbic endocrine, right? Limbic endocrine. But those are very uh, associated with each other. Thalamus, uh, yeah, okay. So this is, what, uh, this is what I'm starting to get into, right? These are just some uh, pictures describing how, you know, uh, a simple reflex, right, as we've talked about so far, is a sensory, you know, input and then output, right, and response. But then, if you start thinking about it, uh, uh, you know, more of a, a brain-related reflex. You, know, you have your sensory, but there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different uh, components ultimately facilitating uh, your response, right? And that's not the one I want to talk about, though. The one I want to talk about is, where is it? 
Where did you go? Did I take it out? Ha! This one. So as we're going to see, right, we're about to talk about the sympathetic and, and auto, uh, sorry, the somatic and autonomic nervous systems. You'll see that there is an actual limbic system influence on these responses, which are also mediated by endocrine. But it, it comes from memory, and a lot of this comes from memory and emotion. All right, I think I'm losing you. I'll start writing stuff down again. <laughs> okay, so let's skip. Let's 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 get out of the brain, and let's go to the peripheral nervous system. Okay, I'll start writing stuff down again. I figure we have a little bit of picture time. Okay. So the first thing that we should talk about is the peripheral nervous system. So the central nervous system is the brain and spinal cord. Peripheral nervous system is essentially everything else. But that can be divided into two major branches, right? Okay, so, and essentially this is skeletal muscle. Where this is going to be like most of the cardiac and smooth muscle. Yep. And glands and everything else. Okay. See, I should be on this side for a little while. There's so many people over here. Okay. You guys got this? Simple enough. <laughs> Good. You okay? Here, I'll leave it like that. Okay. Good. So first what we're looking at is a somatic, right, somatic motor pathway. It's always a motor neuron, right? Okay, that's going to then synapse. This is the skeletal muscle. 
this is the neuro Let's see, whoops, I did this wrong. Okay, so this is the neuromuscular junction is where the neuron meets the muscle. Okay. The neurotransmitter that is released is acetylcholine. And the receptors are acetylcholine receptors, right? And does anyone remember what? In somatic, they're always a certain type. Does anyone remember? Oh, it says it on there. nicotinic acetylcholine receptors and do you guys remember nicotinic ionotrop or nicotinic receptors does that ring a bell right those are what type of receptors ionotropic I just said it right these are ionotropic 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 receptors okay another cool thing about uh, skeletal muscle is during its development so when it's a little baby myotube or mini muscle right so like uh, you know develop in development developing So early, when you have the muscle, the acetylcholine receptors are scattered throughout the muscle. The late What happens is, as you have neuronal input, sorry Nicole, you barely see out there, right? Okay. So as you have the neuron come and input into the muscle, you guys see that? Ish? Okay, as the neuron innervates into the muscle, then these nic nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, they all move to be right where the neuron is.
Make sense? Yeah, because that's where the, the, the acetylcholine is coming out, right? So the receptors will move until they're all kind of congregated around the neuron, is what you see at the top there. And they form this cell plate that collectively is known as the neuromuscular junction. Okay. And another word for neuromuscular junction is uh, NMJ, neuromuscular junction. So uh, it turns out that that junction is pretty important, okay? It's simple. It's always the same. It's always a neuron going to the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. It's always acetylcholine being released. But if you break that connection, you can't move, all right? So if something were to happen and you break this connection, if you break the connection at the neuromuscular junction, you're paralyzed. That's ALS. You guys heard of ALS? So in ALS, in ALS what happens first is de-innervation, de-innervation. So you lose the connection. So you may still have a functioning motor neuron, or you may not, but you, you lose the connection. So acetylcholine receptors may still be on the muscle, but there's no connection. Ultimately, the motor neurons may die off. Can you see that? Here. Ultimately, the motor neurons may die off, but by definition, what ALS is, is that you lose the connection of the, of, the, of the somatic motor neurons to the muscles themselves. So Stephen Hawking, you saw him like in the wheelchair, like he had ALS, right? So he couldn't move. So just by breaking this connection, you, you have paralysis. So it's kind of an important connection, <laughs> right? There's different ways you can get paralysis, right? But like muscular dystrophy, it's a different pathology. But ALS is just breaking the connection between the two. Okay. So here's like a better picture of a, of a neuromuscular junction on the right-hand side. Um, here's a myelinated neuron. I know you guys probably can't draw this. Technically, they call this whole region the motor end plate, right? But what this actually is, is this, right? Where the nerve is innervating into the muscle. And you have the acetylcholine is going to be released, and on this side you have the acetylcholine receptors, the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. This is analogous to neuromuscular junction. Here's a better picture. So that you guys should hopefully already know this, right? Know that acetylcholine gets released into the synaptic cleft as a result of calcium, right? Calcium triggers the release. It's always triggering that vesicular release. Acetylcholine goes into the synaptic cleft. Now in this case, in the case of 
this happens a lot, but there's the way that acetylcholine gets broken down is by enzymes known as acetylcholinesterases. So what they do is metabolize acetylcholine so that it's no longer in the synaptic cleft. If you just had acetylcholine just always staying in your synaptic cleft, right, your you would your muscle would be um, it would be like a muscle cramp, right? You'd have tetany. Where and we're going to talk about muscle and the properties of muscle, but essentially you'd never be able to relax, right? So you need something to remove the acetylcholine from the synaptic cleft. A lot of the times it's, it's reabsorbed depending on the neurotransmitter. Others are actually enzymatically broken down. And so in the case of acetylcholine, you can have reuptake, but then you also have acetylcholine esterase, which uh, breaks down uh, acetylcholine into acetyl group and choline, which are both useful. Acetyl can go and become acetyl-CoA, which will go towards metabolism. And choline is a major component of for example, phosphatidylcholine, uh, which is um, your, well, the head group of your phospholipids. Okay, so, and I think uh, you know that acetylcholine, nicotinic cholinergic receptors are ligand-gated channels, right? You're going to see this over and over again. They are ligand-gated channels that cause a sodium influx, potassium outflux. Simple. That's your somatic. How are we doing on time? Doing okay. Okay. Autonomic, a little bit more complex. So here's somatic. Let's see. Let's go over here. We have them both. Your autonomic is divided into is divided into sympathetic and parasympathetic. One of these is fight or flight. Adrenaline, norepinephrine, epinephrine. Is on this side, the fight or flight side. Parasympathetic is the relax. I should have done, let's see, rest and digest. So you could say that this is like the, how would you paraphrase that even more? Fight or flight, rest and digest. So you could say like this is like kind of the stress side. Stress would probably trigger this side, and relaxation would probably trigger this side, right? They're kind of opposites of each other, yeah? Okay. So, biologically, if we look just at the neurons, let's see, how should we do this? 
get rid of this. They're all involving motor neurons, right? So let's say this is sympathetic. And let's say this is parasympathetic. They all have a motor neuron running to a ganglia where there's a synapse. Okay, and then that runs to something else. This is going to run to some tissue or organ. So because there is, this is a motor neuron, right? It's going to go to, there's a ganglia here. Then it goes to another neuron, which then synapses at some sort of tissue. So because there's this ganglion here, we actually call this the preganglionic side and the postganglionic neurons, okay? Same thing here, preganglionic. Busking then. And the good news is it's pretty easy to remember because the neurotransmitter being released here is always the same. It's always acetylcholine that is being released here. And the receptors are typically nicotinic, but they're definitely acetylcholine receptors. Okay. But then where they differ is over here. If it's parasympathetic, it's still acetylcholine that's being released. But if it is sympathetic, then what is being released instead? Anyone know? What's that? It's not ACH. It's not ACH. Not with the sympathetic. It's something else. What is something that would really get you going? Epinephrine, yeah. This is typically epinephrine or no epinephrine. Right, because this is fight or flight. This is like ah, <laughs> right. This is um, not in the sense of uh, technically one's longer. There's an anatomical differences, but that's more important for your anatomy class. This is 
Yeah. So here we go. See, here's the picture. Here, I'll make it gangland so that it's. Peter ganglionic, post ganglionic. Well, you see, in autonomic systems, where is it? There we go. This is what I'm drawing for you right now. Okay. So there's one additional level of detail, which is that typically here, and we said this, these are nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Whereas here, typically it's muscarinic. And here, typically, it depends. It could be alpha-adrenergic, it could be beta-adrenergic. But we'll say that these are... Let me do it this way. I'll, I'll, I'll draw it again. I'm just going to put it over here. Muscarinic. And here they are, the adrenergic. Adrenergic for adrenaline. Okay. That's the most important part of this, is to know what. So then you guys remember the difference between nicotinic and muscarinic? Yep, metabotropic versus ionotropic, right? So the muscarinic is GPCRs, right? And what kind of receptor do you think the adrenergic receptor is? Yep, so these are GPCRs. These are GPCRs. These are ionotropic. Yes. Yeah, I mean it's I would say yes. So because of the because of the fact that it's a direct, right? So it makes it when you're trying to propagate this thing through the periphery, it makes sense to use the fastest thing possible. But then once you get to the target site, you can utilize a more complex secondary messaging system to really propagate a signal uh, in a more complex way at the tissue site. Okay? So, I mean, it's not a huge difference in, in kinetics, but in theory, yeah, it's, there is because it's, one's just a direct channel, the other's a secondary messenger. Okay, so let me go back to this picture. Technically, there's some differences in anatom anatomically. All right, this is not anatomy class. Um, but you should kind of know that your, your uh, parasympathetic is mainly coming from your midbrain and down in your sacrum. Those are where those, uh, those, um, 
Neuronal connections are, are primarily located. Whereas the sympathetic roots okay, are, are um, located in your spinal cord, thoracic through lumbar. And also there's a difference in length, right? I didn't draw the length, but technically the, the parasympathetic, they have very long preganglionic and very short postganglionic. So I could just say that. Typically, these are very long and short, where these are short and long. Again, not anatomy class, but it might be good for you to know. If you haven't seen this, it's good for you to keep that in your mind. They're not all coming from the same place. And then, I skipped over this slide, but let me go back to it. Also, there's a lot of autonomic control centers, right? Things like uh, your respiratory center, a secondary respiratory center. There's also cardiac input. You know, uh, the vagus nerve, if you've heard of the vagus nerve, okay, that's a big uh, parasympathetic input. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, Cardiac and respiratory control happening from the actual brain, uh, brain itself, midbrain functions, right? And then remember that all animals have midbrains, and so all, of course all animals have these cardiac and respiratory control centers. But remember that we also have a complex cerebrum and this evolved limbic system, which can actually have input on these autonomic control centers. All right, so that was what I was trying to get at when we were doing the slide picture stuff. Okay. Any questions? Is that enough for today? How do you guys feel so far? Making sense? Not too bad? You've probably had teachers go way in way more detail, right? In the, in the nervous system? Maybe? How many people like knew all this stuff already? Somewhat? Okay, that's good. That's great. Okay, so we're learning. That's good. Okay, so I, I don't go to, I would consider myself to kind of stay on the surface level of, of neuroscience. So <laughs> I think this is pretty surface. So, I mean, we did do a couple, with vision, we went like a little bit in, and we talked about the action potential. Right? Action potential is a, is a, but those are all just kind of fundamentals, right? So, um, and GPR, ionotropic and metabotropic receptors. Okay. So hopefully that's not too overwhelming for you guys. That's it for neuroscience. Um, hopefully you got something out of that. But uh, now we're going to move on to how these things, the autonomic and the somatic, are actually controlling muscles. So the next thing we'll start learning about is like how muscles fire and like your skeletal muscles and also your cardiac muscles how they're firing, how they're propagating signals, and, and, then, and so on and so forth. Okay. So we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the brain. In lab today, if we can figure it out, if I can get the laptops going, I'm going to turn off this recording.